Hey, we're Rivet Skull. Listen to Concerts That Made Us to hear our conversation with Brian. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. This episode, I'm chatting with Chad and Mark from Rivet Skull. If you haven't heard of the guys before, make sure you hit the links in the show notes below. They're quite possibly going to be your new favourite band. The guys have over 20 years experience touring the world with music, and they've been to some pretty cool concerts I know a lot of you will be jealous over. But before we hear all about it, we're going to take a listen to their track, Forever. So, without further ado... Let's get on with the show.
Chad and Mark, you're very welcome to concerts that made us. Thank you. It's, it's great to have you guys. Now, we kicked off the show with your song Forever. I mean, is there a more perfect heavy metal song than that? I mean, it has everything. Would you like to tell us a bit about it? Well, yeah, I think it's uh, one of those things where I tend to write a lot from the perspective of, depending on where the listener's at in their time or in life, they can be, the lyrics can be kind of taken several different ways. So I kind of write from a general perspective and depending on the person, they can kind of insert their life into that, you know? So obviously a lot of things going on uh, in the world, uh, you know, good and bad, you know, so that kind of dials into that a bit. Um, you know, we tried to have a song that was, uh, you know, kind of tipping the hat at some of, some of the classic songs, you know, with the opening kind of scream as a little bit reminiscent tip of the hat to a little deep purple kind of, but you know, there's only one Ian Gillen, of course, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a strange world right now. There's a lot going on and how we deal with that and kind of unpack those things and move forward is uh, up to each one of us. But on the, the music side, uh, you know, most of our songs, we try to, to inject a little bit of dynamics uh, into the song. So, you know, the, there's a, a few changes where you've got kind of a driving riff and then it kind of bounces a little, and then it's got something a little more uh, uh, melodic here and there. So it's, uh, you know, we try to mix things up a little bit. Uh, it just kind of comes out of us naturally. I'm not really sure how to describe it. So, Good, good, good. It's from your latest release, but that's actually a reworking of your first album. Would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think that uh, that one, uh, we were actually writing our second album and we were thinking about the first and we were like, man, that was just not a great representation because we did it ourselves basically at home uh, and and recorded it sort of separately. So we decided that it would be a better representation if we could all get in the same room, record it like you do a real album. Uh, so we went to London Bridge Studios in Seattle, which is kind of an iconic studio that uh, bands like Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and uh, Alice in Chains all recorded at. Um, and then we had, a, had it produced by Matt Hyde, uh, and Matt Hyde's uh, uh, acquaintance of Chad's down in L.A., but he's uh, he's a fairly well-known, actually Grammy-winning producer uh, that's worked with Slayer and Hatebreed and Deftones and bands like that. So we were very fortunate to get all that pulled together, and we're very excited about the way it sounds, and we're very happy with how it represents our music. And that's kind of where we got the, you know, we took, actually, it was uh, one of our friends that's helping right now, too, with the uh, promotion and some of the social media stuff was Samsara was kind of her idea. Remember um, when Aaron kind of brought that up because we were trying to come up with, well, what do we want to call this thing? Because we don't want to necessarily just re-release the same title and confuse people, uh, but we need to kind of give it kind of some kind of a diff you know, differentiation. So uh, we decided samsara, which is in Buddhism, is kind of the uh, you know rebirth and new cycle, you know. So Trail of Souls, you know, samsara, Trail of Souls, with a new cover artwork that um, another acquaintance of mine, a friend uh, from Seattle area in Portland, Oregon, Justin Hampton, who's a pretty well known concert uh, poster artist that's done a lot of stuff for you know Soundgarden, Tool, Mastodon, and you know some of these you know nice cool bands. So his uh, artwork really helped kind of kick this thing off to in a different direction you still have the original album up was there any thoughts of maybe taking that one down and just leaving the newer version up 
Yeah, that, you know, that was our initial thought. Um, but, you know, there's, uh, I don't know, we got talked out of it basically by Erin, so you can ask her that question probably. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, in this day of uh, the way that algorithms work and everything, the the basic thought was if we take that down, we're starting from zero again. And so it was left up there. I don't know if it'll stay up forever, but who knows, it may. But that's that's kind of what the we're living in this new digital age and the way that mu the music business works. Um, we were convinced that we should leave it up. I think it's kind of sad to say nowadays that music is kind of almost entirely based around algorithms these days. That's very sad, quite honestly. <laughs> it's very sad, especially when you're kind of a, an old school sort of band that's not really, you know, we're not kind of built for that impact where you release a, a single every month or something like that you know we're you know metal bands and and old hard rock bands always were very album based um and the way that the the music business works now is it's very singles based and it doesn't really suit how we like to do things we like to do albums it's kind of gone back to where you know we kind of got in the 40s and 50s where it was about the single but the single then was the 45 you know, they would just put out their 45 and our single today is now streaming or the MP3. So it's interesting how it's kind of cycled back to. Yeah, yeah, it's gone full circle almost. Strange, strange. Like I want an album. I like to put the thing on and listen from track one to, you know, however many there are. It's yeah. how I listen to records. Yeah, exactly. Personally, I, I love listening to albums in the car. You know, I hate putting on something that's only two or three songs. You know, you want that longevity for a good long car trip. Yeah, totally. Yeah, well, then you always end up skipping songs. You're like, I don't want to hear that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you put on an album, you like, you know what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's a term that I haven't come across before, but when researching you guys, I came across it. The new wave of traditional heavy metal. Would you guys like to tell us a bit about it? I I think uh, we kind of, we we stumbled across that ourselves. And, you know, it's it's kind of that thing where everything needs a label, it seems. And we didn't really know what to call ourselves because we're really more of a classic metal band. You know, we don't really uh, even fit in that category, um, <laughs> although it tends to be the one that we get most pigeonholed in. To us, we're, we're more like, a, you know, the, the late 70s, early 80s type of metal. Um, a lot of the new wave of traditional heavy metal bands actually are more thrashy than we are. Um, but somehow we kind of get stuck in that. We're we're not sure we're all that comfortable with it, honestly. Really? And um, you mentioned pigeonhole there. Being a, a metal band, are you afraid that you will kind of get pigeonholed into that kind of, oh, these guys are, you know, trying to emulate bands from the 70s? Um, I'll answer that one, too. Uh, you know, I guess we could worry about it. Um, but it's kind of who we are. So I don't think there's much we can do about it. You know, it's uh, the music that comes out of us is what what comes out of us. Uh, we all have very different backgrounds uh, musically. Um, you'd be surprised how diverse we are actually uh, in our backgrounds. But um, hopefully that comes across some in the music. And, yeah, we're, you know, trying to to put a fresh face on something that feels familiar is not all that easy. Uh, but at the same time, we kind of like the familiar, you know, and that's kind of where we're where we sit. 
everyone has to point a finger at something and go, what, what do they sound like? They sound like this, you know? So I'd rather at least have it be in the right category than, you know, some, you know, the thing about metal or any musical genre really is there's these days, there's so many subcategories and sub subcategories that, you know, at the end of the day, you got your metal at the top here or whatever. And then however many arms go out from there. And it's like, you know, who knows, you know, but one of the, you know, and whether or not it's called a throwback or just, you know, something new, it's like, it's got that, I think because of our DNA and our exposure to music growing up, it's got that hardwired sound that is who we are yet. So there's the familiarity, but then yet, I think there's a little bit of a fresh spin on it as well. And on the classic rock side, I think someone that's done a really good job of that, which has been one of my favorite bands to come out in you know, a long time. And they're by far not a new band, but uh, Rival Sons who's, you know, from LA, you know, you could swear to God, they ripped songs, you know, certain riffs right out of Led Zeppelin's, you know, catalog, but you know what? So did Led Zeppelin. <laughs> they did the same thing, you know, but yeah. Yeah. And, um, at this stage, I love to give listeners a, a sense of your history, how you got to where you are nowadays. So we'll, we'll, uh, jump way back. Can you remember your very first musical memories? Um, I think my very first musical memories was when uh, I was a kid. I lived in London at the time, actually. Uh, and my sisters had a bunch of albums. And I think the one album that I remember the most was Paul Revere and the Raiders. And uh, they were listening to that. And I, it really kind of hooked me. But it wasn't a lot until I was in high school that I kind of picked up the guitar. Um, but that's definitely like my first real musical memory of rock music. It stuck with me forever just listening to that one album uh, of theirs. But that, uh, other than that, you know, there was a a growth from rock to hard rock to uh, heavy metal. Um, and, you know, what I call heavy metal, you know, is not necessarily what people today would call heavy metal. Um, but, uh, you know, there was kind of a, a progression from there. Uh, for me, let's see, I just always remember having a turntable, and I think I can thank my folks for that back at the time. It's like it was one of those early Montgomery Ward at the time was the, uh, you know, with the fake wood on the front of it and stuff and the dials. And and I remember the first records that I had on vinyl with the two were actually it was Donnie and Marie. It was the Osmonds and uh, Captain and Tennille. It doesn't get much more metal than that. No, Uh, but we're talking elementary school here in the, you know, you know, late 70s, you know, so we're not. But then it didn't take very long before I uh, stumbled on to Kiss, um, which was obviously the gateway drug to many uh, musicians and and music bands. Uh, So I was definitely as a uh, someone that was in there like, you know, around 10, you know, I was uh, 10 years old and 70 and 81. So I was right at that kind of music was doing a weird thing right there because you had disco was kind of fading out. Kiss jumped in there with the dynasty record. You know, some of the, you know, hair metal bands were starting to kind of pop out of the woodwork and metal was kind of taking birth in its form and uh, it's a new form, I should say. So it was really around that time, a friend of mine that I was hanging out with, who was about 10 years older than me said, Hey, I want you to check out these two records. And one of them was Kansas left overture. And the other one was rush farewell to Kings. And that right there was just one of those like mind exploding things for me that led me down this, you know, whole uh, progressive path and uh, kind of took me a while to come back around full circle. But then it explored into many, many, many different genres at that point. But And Mark, your first experience into playing music, 
it wasn't you didn't originally want to be a, a guitar player you wanted to be a drummer didn't you yes that's right and uh my folks wouldn't let me have drum set because i thought it'd be too loud uh, and <laughs> i got electric guitar and they were sorry for that decision too <laughs> uh, but yes uh i've always been kind of a big fan of rhythm and and locking into that the the groove of a song um i probably play a little bit the same way um I like to lock in a little bit. I'm not a a washy player. I'm kind of riffy. Yeah, I get you. I get you. And Chad, what was your uh, your first foray into actually playing music? That would have been in the third grade, I believe, uh, violin. Um, and I kind of kept that up as you know, as most kids do in the elementary school. At least they do over here. Is you know, you kind of pick your band instrument. You know, if you want to be one of the band dorks, and which I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm in. You know, so I managed to stick with violin up until just about high school. And then until I deemed that the violin wasn't cool anymore. <laughs> and, and then I traded it in on a uh, uh, towards a Gibson Explorer and kind of went down the path with guitar for a while and bounced around on several instruments before I kind of landed on bass guitar, which then, you know, I was singing and playing bass and then really launched into vocals, you know, primarily, but still play vocals and bass. You've a background not just in metal, but everything from metal to opera. And you have some pretty formal training as well, don't you? Mm-hmm. I do. It was one of those things where I, uh, my original band at the time, Ashland, we were a, uh, a three-piece, then four-piece. Uh, it was kind of a prog band that was, uh, you know, around Seattle, right when the grunge explosion was happening. So not great timing for a band doing progressive music to try to get notice when, <laughs> when grunge is taking over the world. But I uh, was kind of nominated the singer of that band because we couldn't find anybody we liked. And I was just a bass player. And then that's when I decided, well, if I want to do this, I'd like to be known as a vocalist and not just, you know, the bass player that happens to, you know, sing okay. And at the time is when I seeked out, um, there's this maestro David Kyle up in Seattle who taught a lot of the big guys back in the day. And he was in his 80s when I started taking with him back then. But it was really uh, that shaped a whole lot for me as far as what I can do with my voice and, uh, you know, the different styles of tributing that I can do and uh, and just to be the longevity and being able to use the voice properly and not, you know, burn the thing out. But uh, so that was very, very huge on my development into becoming you know, ultimately a singer. So I like that, actually, that you actually seeked out that formal training. You wanted to, you know, know how to use your voice, know the limits of your voice and not eventually hurt your voice you know not a lot of singers i find nowadays in bands actually do that it's just oh i can sing i'm going to scream scream my lungs out and you know eventually they will end up hurting their vocal cords but i like that you actually done it the proper way yeah i just wanted to be known as a vocalist and just you know and try to have that healthy voice and that longevity so i can hopefully do it for a long time one of the ones that uh, I don't know how he's even alive still, but uh, God bless him, he is. But Glenn Hughes, you know, from Deep Purple, and uh, his voice sounds better today at 70 than he's sounded his entire life. And it's just like, I can only hope to achieve that kind of longevity <laughs> that that guy's had. Yeah, yeah, geez. And um, you guys have toured the world previously in tribute bands. One thing I've always wondered about tribute acts is. Is it fulfilling? Do you feel like you're held back creatively? I can speak for myself on that one. I, you know, that uh, it's fulfilling to a a level, but it's not 
fulfilling enough. Um, it feels good to really be able to pull off some of the stuff that we were able to do and play some of the stuff we were able to play. Um, and I'm sure it had a lot to do with uh, our growth as musicians. But certainly playing your own music just feels right. You know, you're not struggling against how you want it to sound. It's just it, it sounds the way you are. Um, and so it's it's a lot different. I mean, we got had a lot of opportunities. And, you know, like you said, we got to come play in Ireland and other places, uh, which was very cool. Um, but, uh, you know, at this point in, in my life anyway, I'm that's I have very little interest in that anymore. Yeah, it's very similar. It's rewarding in the sense that when you get the right chemistry of people together, and to me, that's what it's all about, because anybody can, you know, learn some version or kind of get in the ballpark of, you know, playing cover tunes. But every now and then you get a group of people where there's not only do you have the notes, but you have the similar chemistry of what that band had and that translates on stage. And when that hits the audience, you can see that and then you have that energy back and forth. That's what really makes a difference, I think, to a really upper end, you know, tribute band. Because uh, that's the thing. It's like there's zillions of them out there. It's like there's no certificate you get or anything that says that, you know, I'm this class or this grade. It's like so people don't know, you know, but it's easier to book a tribute band sometimes because, you know, they know what they're getting. People show up. They go, oh, I like this band. I'll go see him. As opposed to being an original band, you're kind of in that, you know, constant trying to break through the barrier to be seen and be heard and have somebody take a chance on you. But at the end of the day, it's definitely like what Mark was saying, too. It's And that's kind of where I am after touring with the Zeppelin tribute band for almost 20 years, doing the John Paul Jones thing. It's like it was great. And I got to see a lot of the world and have some amazing shows and play for some really big crowds, you know. And But at the end of the day, it kind of comes back to fulfilling that need to do your own stuff and communicate that to everybody. And hopefully somebody responds to it. <laughs> it must have been a, a pretty scary leap then to uh you know from being in a, a successful tribute act you know as you said it's easier to book gigs to making the leap to forming your own new fresh band i think it i think it comes down to not having any great expectations for it honestly you have to kind of do your best and and hope for the best to some extent and you know we're doing it for the pleasure of doing it and we're hoping that comes across in the music and that that catches people's you know interest and how did rivet skull come to be together then how did you get all the members together how did you start making music well that uh it's almost a uh transition from our last tribute you know the we were doing the ronnie james dio uh tribute uh chad uh myself and the drummer were all in that band and so we kind of when we stopped doing the tribute you know as we transitioned out of that uh, me and uh, Michael, the drummer, actually demoed a bunch of songs, uh, worked with Chad on getting some of that arranged. And then we uh, found our bass player, Mark, who was an acquaintance of Chad's. Uh, and everything just kind of came together. Um, you know, we all have been together for a long time. So there was a lot of chemistry already. Um, you know, we've been doing the uh, Dio thing for what, Chad, seven years or something? I can't remember. He's, yeah, I guess. Was it that long? I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh you know so we we already had a bit of a chemistry so we were we were building on a good foundation and then uh, mark hopkins just fit right in it's interesting because the uh, deal thing formed even like that which even led up to that i at the time was was in a rush tribute band i was doing the getty role in that <laughs> bass keys and vocals 
and uh was doing that and the uh also the zeppelin thing and uh, i remember when the, i saw the thing for the uh i think it was a posting or something for the deal thing i forget what it was but i can't remember how we we hooked you chad i can't remember yeah it was but i, I think it was might have been through our friend al but it was because he was in the band at the time and anyway i was just remember seeing Dio, and i'm like oh my god that would be kind of fun i wonder if i could pull that off and so i kind of went and tried it a little bit on my own i'm like that sounds like fun let me go set up you know so we set up a uh audition type thing i remember and we just kind of went to the band room there and i just kind of like well let's i'm not sure if this is going to work but let's see if it works and and it worked so yeah he killed it one that just sprung to mind i'm sure there's somebody out there listening at the moment now who's asking themselves this question but for someone with such range who can sing in many different styles of different singers how can you do it you know how can you go from rush to Led Zeppelin, to Dio? I think it comes back to that training of and just knowing your voice and knowing what to do and how to manipulate the sounds to get to at least kind of close to what the original is that you're trying to emulate. And um, as I would also sang, I'd done an Iron Maiden tribute for a number of years up in Seattle. And so to, you know, but, you know, Bruce Dickinson and Dio are a little, you know, more, you know, definitely two different vocalists, but definitely some similarities kind of crossover. But yeah, it's just being able to really understand that voice and, you know, understand your chemistry and what makes up your the way you sing and then how you have to alter it to get to that point. And what maybe what works for you doesn't work for the next guy. But then but the key is you have to get there without doing any kind of vocal strain or any kind of vocal damage in the process if you want to do it for any length of time. So you guys, you know, you mentioned you've been touring for 20 years with those bands. Why? Not to make you feel old now, but you're not guys in your 20s. Why what? now? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, why did you wait until now then to, you know, start something, something from the start? I think it's just the way the the cards that were dealt, you know, it's like the way everything works with time, you know, it's a weird thing. You can never really, you can kind of plan things, but at the end of the day, it's just like, you know, opportunities come up at certain points when you don't really expect them sometimes. And that's just kind of, I think the way it all worked out with all of us, with our schedules and different bands and all that other stuff. So. Yeah. I think, I think also part of it is, is a bit of maturity actually helps you to put something solid together. You know, I, we've all done original bands when we were younger and, um, you know, I had, I was in bands in Houston, Texas back in the eighties and, you know, it was, it was a different feeling, you know, there, you were, you're more grounded in your world and you're more capable of working collaboratively. Um, and, uh, you know, accomplishments are not, uh, you know, your, your, your life is based in reality <laughs> <laughs> at this age versus the way it was when you were younger. So I, I kind of feel like it works to, to our advantage in some ways. Yeah. Plus you're less likely to, you know, get screwed over by the music business side of it. <laughs> no, you still will. <laughs> That's avoiding it. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. And um, you know, with all the experience you guys have, what factors then do you think are important for making a successful band? I think mostly it has to do with with the band being able to get along and, and kind of interlocking with each other. And at the same time, having different opinions, different backgrounds, and being able to bring all that together 
and and being able to adjust your own perceptions or what you think it should be and let it be what it is uh, with everybody else. You know, because everybody can say like, oh, no, I think you should do it like this, but we don't do that. It's kind of like, you know, we we write the songs and it's like, oh, that's that's cool. We'll, we'll do that. You know, trying to make it meet one individual person's wishes is never works in a band. You got to let everybody be themselves. Yeah, true, true. Very well said. And it's concerts that made us. So I have to ask, what concerts do you think made you guys? Go for it, Mark. Um, for me, I would say the one that made me pick up the guitar was when I saw Van Halen's first world tour where they were opening for Black Sabbath. Oh, man. Uh, when I when I saw that Eddie Van Halen, I was like, I have got to play guitar. <laughs> that was it. After that, I was like, I got to get a guitar. Um, so that was pretty much the concert that made the difference for me. Um, that was back in 1978 when Van Halen did their first world tour. And, you know, I, I still remember Ozzy yelling at the crowd because everybody was so burned out from watching Van Halen that they wouldn't stand up. And he was yelling at everybody to stand up and everybody was just so damn tired. <laughs> <laughs> after all of the energy from Van Halen that they had nothing left for Sabbath. And, you know, it wasn't shortly after that that, that Ozzy left Sabbath, of course. But, uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting show for sure. But that was definitely what kicked it off for me. Yeah, geez, that's a. Uh, there's millions of people that would love the opportunity to have seen that concert. Yeah, what a bill! Yeah, <laughs> what, a, yeah. what a great bill! I, I consider myself lucky in that way. Yeah, that's definitely. One of, the, one of the benefits of my age. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was let's see. I think well, my first concert then, which was you know very impactful, was I it would be in it was in '83, so uh, so I was like 12 years old. Um, that was Def Leppard uh, was on their Pyromania tour. So at that point, Uriah Heep was opening. I didn't really know who the hell they were at the time, even though, you know, they had a whole history before <laughs> before all that. But I think just being in that environment, going from, you know, never been to a concert before and you're set foot in a coliseum that's, you know, 10,000 people plus, you know, with a band like Def Leppard that at the time, I mean, they were firing all cylinders, man. They were raw. They were they had that sound that was just like. You know, they had the big, you know, scaffolding with the, you know, target scope and stuff with the neon and all that and the pyro and all the stuff going off. And I still that was between that and the second concert, which was um, Ozzy Bark at the Moon tour. And, you know, I'll never forget him running down the big staircase in the beginning, you know, and then the big bats open their wings and the pyro goes off and stuff. And it was just like, I'm like, that's what I want to do. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to do that. And then the. And for energy, though, and as a performer, one of the first people that I really saw and people kind of bag on him, and I've always been a huge fan, is Sammy Hagar. He puts on a hell of a show, and especially back in the 80s and 70s, late 70s and 80s. The energy that guy had was unbelievable. And just seeing the way that guy performed was kind of one of those things where I'm like, yep, okay, all right. This is all starting to make sense. The pieces are coming together. But I think those are definitely the first couple, three shows uh, that really started to mold in, I think, what was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Geez, there's going to be a lot of people listening now, jealous of you guys getting to see those. <laughs> <laughs> and from a performer point of view, then, what would you say are some of the best experiences, best gig experiences you've had? 
I would, uh, it's, this may sound like I'm, I'm pandering, but it, it was in Ireland. Um, right. The, our shows in Ireland were just so much fun. The people are so awesome. I couldn't pick a venue that was my favorite. You know, we did the button factory and that was always fun. The, uh, Dolan's was a good time. We played Dolan's. Oh man. Um, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, I don't remember. We played a bunch of places. We played at uh, what was it, the Rosendub in Galway? That's a fairly famous venue now around Ireland. It's like any band coming up, that's their target. Uh huh. <laughs> that was a cool little place. I love that place. It was a nice town too. It was fun to hang out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I you know some of our best experiences, at least for me, we came to Ireland twice, um, and both times were just amazing. And you know, we still have lots of friends that. We consider friends that live there in Ireland that we can't wait to see again. Ah, I'm actually surprised by that answer now because a lot of bands actually, you know, they overlook Ireland. They never think of actually coming to Ireland. It's like, oh, we're going to Europe. We'll go to England, Scotland, Wales. Then we'll jump to the mainland. <laughs> well, they're missing out. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> they don't know where a good time can be had. Exactly. I even, got, I even got two tattoos there. I got my Irish pinup girl. I got that in Dublin and that one also in Dublin. So ah, <laughs> cool, cool. And Chad, what gigs stand out for you? Ah, you know, that's a real tough one because it's there's been not to sound like, you know, but there's been so many of them. I mean, thousands of gigs that it's like it's tough to really even pinpoint. I mean, almost any time I get a chance to play is like a, an, is, is, is a special moment, you know. I think some of, you know, the bigger crowds are always sometimes that like, you know, has that extra wow factor to it just because you're kind of like, wow, you know, know, I think like 15,000 or something was like the biggest I played in front of. And that was with the Zeppelin band. And, you know, just kind of one of those things that kind of gives you that validation of like, I'm doing something kind of right anyway. You know, it's because you get that energy from that many people, you know, but you can get us, but you can get the same energy too from a really just fanatical crowd in a small club. You can get that same type of chemistry too, but it's just a little bit different. So it's really kind of a, I can't really pinpoint it other than the fact that it's, I think it's definitely been the, the uh, tribute bands that have, I played the most shows for, uh, for as far as like attendance wise goes, but just every, every show, it's just the opportunity to get to do this at all is just a blessing. So it's like, you know, I'll just take it at that. Great answer. Great answer. Now, we've heard the good, so I'm afraid we have to get slightly negative now. What are some of the worst experiences you've had, and how did you overcome them? Oh, boy. Well, that's it. Chad, how about uh, the gig up in Alaska? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely one of the that, that's one of the top ones. That was for sure. That was a... Uh, that was with the Dio tribute, actually. And we, uh, yeah, that was uh, really just mismanaged everything. Uh, but we went up to this gig that was uh, two shows up in Alaska, and it was Fairbanks. It was yeah. minus 34 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, Celsius. I, forget, I can't remember what that is, but it's cold as shit. <laughs> um, the uh, club, they had, they had speakers. But that was it. They just had speakers. There was no amps, oh. no cables, no microphones. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and apparently this venue was in the process of moving to a new location. And you know, the promoter wanted to keep it at the same original location or something. But they had no like stage stuff there. And our sound man at the time, Larry, who is uh, like a MacGyver, 
of uh, just being able to, he, it took us an extra, we were like an hour and a half late getting on stage because he had to basically, you know, bare wire and strip things and build. And, you know, we had bands bringing, you know, amps from their practice rooms and coming back to help build enough of a system that we could actually do this show. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the day, it ended ultimately with the guy, uh, the promoter being thrown out into the snow in his flip flops and shorts. That was where he was for some reason wearing in minus 34 degrees. I have no idea why. <laughs> if that tells you anything about the whole scope of the event, but that's definitely one of the top ones for sure. Yeah, it was pretty rough. <laughs> that was one of the time. But again, it's like, you know, the, the, the tendency, you know, yeah, we, we were getting a little bit mad, you know, there was, you know, but you just kind of got to check everything. It's like we wanted to give the people that showed up a show, you know, and they didn't understand what was going on. They, you know, they didn't know why the hell we're through, you know, we eventually kind of told them what was happening, but nobody could figure out, you know, you wouldn't think in a million years that you would show up to a show that you bought tickets for and there'd be that kind of just craziness of, mm. you know. You know, yeah, not a PA in the house. <laughs> what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Oh, I'm sure there's plenty more I could think of, but <laughs> that one always pops to mind. And as as rough as it was, it it's still a good memory, oddly enough. Well, and this was another classic one that I remember. This is back with my original band Ashland back in the day, and we were we're trying to get into somebody's college circuit things of so getting into the college thing because we heard there could be some good you know gigs there and good way to get you know younger audience and new audience and so we played this graduation party at some towny tiny town out in the mountains uh in washington in a city called omac washington and little did we know that the graduation thing that the, where they had us playing was not uh nobody comes out to that because they're getting ready for graduation so it's not like it's afterwards so like there's hardly anybody there and we were playing in a restaurant all of i would say the average age was about 70 years old <laughs> and uh we were like just trying to set up on the corner in this room. And I remember like, I think uh, Dean or drummer, like, you know, hit the drum a couple of times to tune it. And the manager runs over and they're like, it's not going to be that loud. Is it? Oh, and my God. Like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we're like, Oh, we're screwed. We are totally screwed. You know? And, and we'd, we'd start and like immediately, like as soon as we started playing and we were playing as quiet as we could, but you could just see a line of these blue hairs walking out of the place with their hands over their ears, just leaving, leaving the place. And the person that booked it, she sat there with her arms crossed and this scowl on her face. And it's like, and she, and we'd finish and she goes, if you expected a sympathy clamp from me, you're not getting one. And I'm like, oh my God. It's like, this is the woman that's like supposed to pay us, you know, it's like. Anyway, and then somebody, they were, you know, we had comments of, can you turn the symbols down? Uh, we had, uh, you know, people were writing post-its that said, you're very good, but you're just too damn loud, you know? And so, oh. <laughs> so, but what we did, we, we basically just, you know, said, hey, this is obviously is not working, so we'll just pack up, you know? And so that's what we did. And then obviously we never returned to OMAC again. So, but that yeah, was I it. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, they, them two stories now, I think they take the cake for some of the worst I've heard anyway. <laughs> oh, I'm sure this, I'm sure I can come up with others, but that's good for now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh man. So when you guys play to, you know, large, large numbers, what's your post-show ritual? How do you come down from experience that much energy? Uh, typically, uh, a nice shot of whiskey and, uh, and a beer. I love a Guinness. <laughs> I think we generally just kind of 
first of all, we'd love to go hang out with the peeps after the show if we can. Um, you know, we, we do that as much as we can. And it's always fun to socialize because it does take us a few hours before we can relax and even think about going to sleep. So, you know, that's probably our favorite thing to do is just go hang out and have a drink with some people. Um, sometimes we go wandering around town late at night, which is kind of fun too. trying to find food if there's anything still open. <laughs> So you don't like go back to hotel rooms and throw TVs out windows and trash the place. <laughs> well, after that, yeah. Of course no. we do that, but that's <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to say yes to that, right? <laughs> yeah, no, we don't do that. No, no, I was just uh I've always wondered, you know, when you're on stage and that it's such a buzz. I always imagine that it's near impossible walking off. It's like you're leaving the rock star on the stage and trying to get back to your normal self is such a hard process, if you get me. Yeah, it's it's definitely a wind down to some extent, but it's not that hard. I guess because I'm just I feel like I'm always the same person. So it's kind of like it's just a continuation of what I did before I got on stage is I just keep doing what I did when I get off stage. So it's a little <laughs> bit more of a seamless transition <laughs> for me, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I get you. I get you. And what's next for rivet skull what's on the on the cards i think at uh, this point we're actually working on that second album that we mentioned earlier on when we stopped to redo the first album um and we hope to have that done by the end of the year um and then uh, we're looking at planning some tours for next year ah brilliant brilliant where are you uh open to play um, the first tour we're going to sort of focused on the West Coast of the U.S., you know, from Washington down through Texas and places like that. But, uh, you know, ultimately, we want to do be able to maybe do some festivals. Uh, we'd love to come overseas and do some festivals, uh, maybe do some tours there as well. Um, you know, we find that what we play is probably a little bit more attractive outside of the U.S. than it is in the U.S., We've, we've always gotten really good receptions when we're overseas, uh, particularly in Europe, Ireland, places like that. And that's kind of where we'd hope to get to eventually. I can definitely understand that. I could actually listen to you guys all day on repeat now. So I completely understand what you mean about the European audiences kind of being more receptive. And that's the thing is there are so many festivals over there, you know, that have just, you know, they're gigantic, they're enormous, you know, and just those metal festivals that happen over there. It's just seems like a natural fit that as soon as we can figure out our kind of in to that, you know, we'll definitely be there. Yeah. Yeah. And before we move on to the last couple of questions, I've noticed with bands, it's a great help to have a good team behind you. So I know you mentioned her before, but I just wanted to give a, a special shout out to Erin, who helped put this interview together as well. Indeed. Yeah, she's very key. Yeah, yeah, she is. She's uh, it was great now working with her for that little bit of time trying to organize this. So she's uh, I think you guys are on to a, a great one with her helping. Good, good. It's good to hear. Glad to hear that. Yeah. It's important to have a team, you know, it's like, it's, especially this day and age, there's so much to do because there's so much competition and space that you're vying for to compete with, the, you know, everything else out there in the social media land. It's like, and it's just kind of a strange art form that is kind of unknown. No one really understands, I think, you know, what the algorithms do and, you know, what's your best marketing spend and how to best make your posts work and how to best generate the, you know, organic followers and, 
it requires you know daily uh work yeah and it's tough to do all that stuff when you're trying to you know be a band and you know have a life and do other things too it's like so it's important to have for any band that's doing this stuff these days man you got to really figure out how to embrace that and you know get that get that social media stuff working i can't stand it myself really i mean <laughs> i just you know i mean i like social media but you know first but it's like it's just this kind of really strange um new skill set that everybody has to have that i think few really understand how to harness the power of it you know correctly you know and i think they're starting to but you could have college classes on that stuff you know it's crazy yeah it's personally i find it an absolute nightmare it's like playing roulette you know oh you yeah just you never know what's going to land <laughs> exactly right and we'll get on to the last couple of questions now i'm afraid everybody gets these so you can't get off the podcast till you answer i'm afraid oh boy <laughs> if you guys could see any artist from history in concert for one night only who would it be oh boy i can tell you who it'd be for me i'll go for it then because i'm still like i'm going through the rolodex in my head here. <laughs> for me i would you know i've seen a lot of bands obviously i've been around for a while but i never did get to see queen um, nice. that would certainly be on the top of my list yeah yeah i completely understand i'd be the same myself that's actually a, an answer that comes up quite often really that's interesting because yeah yeah that's definitely it would be on my my list i think one of the first ones which is kind of strange but the first thing that popped into my head i'm going to go with which would be Jimi hendrix i think there to just to see that happen in its prime back in the you know in in that time frame with uh, hendrix and the experience and all that would just be something amazing absolutely amazing if you know if not that and I, and I barely missed it but i think if i was to go back and mark has got to actually see this but um i'd like to see van halen with david lee roth you know with that original lineup with that raw energy that they had you know somewhere like either on the at the us festival or back when they were playing at the whiskey down here when they were just the band from pasadena california you know to be able just to step back a little further and just be able to witness and experience that for the first time, you know, would be huge. Yeah, no, that that would be epic. That would be epic. And the next one, if you could spend 24 hours locked inside a room with any artist from history, who would it be? Mm. Any artist from history? Did you know, Mark? You know, there's there's quite a few of them for me, but you know, I couldn't. I couldn't pick one. It would be hard for me to pick this one. <laughs> that's that's not a fair question because then I have to pick a lot out. Um, I don't know. One of the one of the people that you know has always interested me the most, obviously, would be Ronnie James Dio. You know, the guy started in the fifties in a doo wop band and uh, played in Rainbow, and then solo and then with sabbath um you know it kind of spanned my musical history to some extent and uh it'd be an interesting conversation definitely definitely and i think he's one of them people that you know you wouldn't have to worry that he's going to have a massive ego or he's going to you know it's going to be one of them never meet your hero type things right well that was definitely one of mine for sure um I got to meet him a couple of times, but very briefly. It wasn't one of those get to sit and have a big long conversation. But you know, so I was at least fortunate enough to get to say hi to the guy. But but I think 
one of my favorite all-time artists, um, and they can't get much more opposite, would be Peter Gabriel. Um, I'm a huge Gabriel fan of just, you know, the Genesis era that he was in there, as well as just all the solo stuff that he did. Because, you know, the guy's got such interesting contributions towards, you know, music with the Womad Festival, of the world art music stuff, and just, you know, he just seems like a really interesting cat. You know, I'd love to sit and talk with that guy for uh, like a while. That would be an interesting one, though. And if there was a song that could appear on the soundtrack to your lives, what would it be? Oh, boy. I'm going to go with the first thing that popped in my head. For some reason, it was uh, Unchained Van Halen. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just that opening riff just always just, you know, I don't know. I love it. <laughs> it's a good one to get you going. <laughs> I would say for me, it, this reminds me of when I was learning to play guitar, and it's a song I listened to probably 10,000 times trying to learn it. And it may seem like an odd choice, but it was uh, uh, Judas Priest, Beyond the Realms of Death, ah. which has always been one of my favorite songs of theirs. But that's probably because I spent so much time when I was first learning to play guitar, trying to figure out how to play that damn song and the solo for that song. And I just, I, that song's just kind of like part of me to some extent. Great choice. Great choice. Well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed the last hour chatting with you now. You bet. Thank you so you much. Well. Thank, Thank you for having us.
Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is DJ JC, and I'm one of the DJs over at Super Cool Radio. I host a one-hour metal show called The Brutal Block. We have new episodes every Tuesday dropping at noon. So if heavy metal music is something that you're into, then make your way over to The Brutal Block. Throw up the horns, and let's get rockin'. Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify. And if you're interested in signing up the Band Builder Academy, use the link in the show notes below and enter the code CONCERTS and you'll receive 10% off. So, until next time, keep rocking. Hey! Hey, what are you guys still doing here? The show is over. It's over. You can go home. Go on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here. Bye.